Good morning. My name's Zach, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're a guest with us today, we're really glad to have you. I'm glad you could uh, join us. I hope you feel welcome worshiping with us. And if I haven't gotten to meet you yet, I look forward to being able to do so uh, and getting to know you a little bit better. Uh, you find us this morning uh, at the end of a sermon series. We're closing out our sermon series that we've been in this, this fall that we called Pray God Down. And it's a little bit strange because it feels like we just started this series in the way that 2020 is moving so quickly. It certainly evidenced itself in this series. This year has just flown by. That's also part of the reason why we did this series. Is to the best of our ability, we wanted to recognize this moment in time in which we live. Look, your life is going to be marked by this year. Like everything that's going on with it. We know that, right? We know that the world is just not going to be the same. We live in really uncertain times. We don't know what the future is going to hold. And so we wanted to somehow recognize that moment because moments like this can be distracting. They can be moments where we find ourselves riddled with stress and anxiety because of all of the uncertainty. We can see everything going on in the world around us and it can be discouraging. And in, this, and in the light of all of that, how can we find ourselves in a place where we can move towards orienting ourselves towards God in the midst of all of this? Because in the midst of all of that certainty, we wanted to find certainty in God's purposes and in God's desires and in his presence with us. And so we uh, recognize that, you know, God doesn't stay silent about these moments. You know, pandemics and plagues are not, you know, God doesn't throw his hands up in the air. He speaks directly to moments just like this. And we said that in these moments, God extends an invitation to his people he says, if my people pray and seek my face, he's the God that desires to move towards them, to come down and dwell with them. Let us not forget that invitation that God gives to us. And so this sermon series has really been about accepting that invitation to pray, to recognize this moment, all of the uncertainty, and to move towards God and seek his face. And so as we entered into a season of prayer, we used John 17 to guide us. It's a great prayer. Why? Because it's Jesus. It's God himself talking to God himself about his desires for the world and for us. What a great place to look for us to see how we could pray and how we could align our desires with God's. And so if I could, I just wanted to take stock at the beginning of our sermon today to think about and ask the question, how has this, this series shaped us and how we have prayed? What have we prayed for in the midst of everything going on, because I do believe as we move forward, as we see God move, we need to remember that God answers our prayers, that when we align our desires with his, he is faithful, and to remember that we prayed into the future that lies ahead. Each and every week that you've gathered here, we have prayed for the glory of God to be revealed among us as a church. We have asked for more of him. We've asked him to move. We've asked him to work among us. We've united our community groups together in prayer and in focus and devotion each and every week. We've gathered corporately. We prayed for our families. We prayed for your families. We prayed for this church. We prayed for this community. We prayed for our world. We prayed for the future that lies ahead, that God would lead us in the way that he would have us go and that he would align our collective desires with his desires. And last week, we hit the streets. We had 120 people participate in last week's prayer walk. 
120 people from this congregation going out into the community in the streets surrounding, in the surrounding neighborhoods to this church, praying for the community, asking that God would use us to reach our community in the middle of the cold and unexpected drizzle. We prayed. We prayed that God would open doors for us and that God would give us opportunities, literally open doors to us. Because in a couple of weeks, on November 15th, we will go door to door on those same streets. We're going to greet our neighbor. We're going to say hello. We're going to see what happens. And we're going to try and befriend our community in a way that we never have before. And we're going to invite them to come to our place on Thanksgiving Day. Hopefully what can be a new tradition in which we have a presence of befriend, the befriending love of Christ in our community. And certainly there's a part of us like, man, I'm fine with the prayer part. But moving in and actually going and talking to people I don't know, that's kind of where I'm not so much interested in that anymore. I think we all feel that, don't we? So why would we do this? Well, it's because we want to take John 17 seriously. Because we can't just pray for what Jesus prayed for without recognizing what Jesus desired we would do and become in the world. We can't say, yeah, Jesus, I'm all for your love being known in the world, but I'm just going to exist for me. I'm all for praying for that, for other people to do it. I just don't want to participate in it. And yet we hear in John 17 very clearly that Jesus desires a people that recognize we do not exist for ourselves because we had a God that came to us and chose to not just exist for himself, but to exist for the life eternal that we have been given in Jesus Christ. And if we take John 17 seriously, then we know that we possess the greatest message that anyone could possibly hear. We possess the most freeing, life-giving message that someone's ears could ever come across. And Jesus died so that you would receive that message, but he died just as much so that you would give that message to the world, that you would participate in the life that he offers to everyone around us. Because it's in John 17 that Mark mentioned last week that Jesus desires his dying wish was that the world would know the love of the Father and the Son. And all throughout the prayer in John 17 is that the world would know the fellowship, communion that we have in Christ with the Godhead. That's a love that transcends time and situation and pandemic and plague. It transcends your mistakes, your failures, all the ways that you've messed up. It transcends all the things that have been done to you transcends all the things that you have done. And it's the very love and the very message that Jesus would have you, the world, all of us know. And at the end of, John, or of his prayer in John 17, Jesus says something that we need to take note of before we move into our passage. He says, Father, I have made known your name, your love, and I will continue to make it known. And so what's he mean when he says that? What does he mean when he says, I will continue to make your name and your love known? Well, he continues to make the love of the Father known through the witness of his people. When we choose to bear witness to that love to the world around us, this is how God designed this whole thing to work, is that this kingdom that we are a part of will move out into the world and we will see its power when God's people choose to open their mouth and speak of that love that no tongue could speak of, to share a love that no action could ever encompass the fullness of. 
It's the very means by which this message and that love extends into the world. Because after all, one of the great questions of the scriptures is, who will go for us? And the gospel continues to ask that question through Jesus Christ. And we want to be a church that bears witness. Now, we've talked about, we've used that language of bearing witness for the last few weeks. And it's been fun because everybody kind of has a different approach to that word, the idea of bearing witness, because everybody has kind of their own traumatic story of whenever they've had to bear witness or they've been witnessed to in very weird and awkward ways. And one of the funniest ones was hearing through the grapevine that Randy Zisk in college just had some people knock on his door. They wouldn't go away, and this conversation kept going, and they wanted to fill up his bathtub so they could baptize him right then and there. And so if that's something that you would like to do when we go door to door, by all means, go for it. Just do not mention the name Rockwall Press. We, uh, when we talk about bearing witness, we do not mean any of those things. What we mean is the example of Jesus. When you take back and pull away some of the miracles, the healings, and the supernatural, what do you see the ministry of Jesus in its simplicity? It looks a lot like friendship. It's befriending, going to somebody and saying hello, a woman at the well, talking to someone about the meaning of life like Nicodemus when they come to him at night. It means sitting with people that aren't like you. It means going to the sinner. It means going to the saint, the righteous and the unrighteous, talking about life and God and the meaning of everything. And why are we here in the first place? It's just being a real friend to real people. And if Jesus is our example, then don't we have to recognize that it means that we go to the world. We do not wait for the world to come to us. And right now we have such a great opportunity, don't we? Because the world feels like it's kind of falling apart. And it's moments like this where this message of this love just shines brighter against the backdrop of this dark, chaotic world that's only going to continue to offer things that continuously disappoint. And we have an opportunity to befriend our community and just try in some small way to display that love of the Father, to display the love of the Son in some simple and small way and bear witness. And yet, that's scary, it's intimidating, and it's frightening. And I think we'd be lying if we said otherwise. And I've heard from so many of you that's exactly how you feel. Why? One, it's just intimidating by itself. But two, the world we live in, what does witnessing look like in 2020? When we live such separate, isolated, segmented lives from one another. When our our paths cross so little with other people and our neighbors. What does witnessing look like in a world that's already so isolated and angry and detached and disconnected and suspicious and skeptical of everything and everyone that isn't like me or like you or like us? How do you witness in this world? I simply do not know any other way other than what Jesus shows us. We have to go to the world. And yet it's scary. And I said at the beginning of this series that if you want to follow this God and not just know about this God, not just know a few facts about this God, a part of the Christian life, if you want to follow this God, is that you have to be willing to follow him into the unknown. Because sooner or later, he's going to bring you, he's going to bring us into a situation, a place, or a circumstance where all your resources, 
all your knowledge, all your strength, all your ability, all your understanding completely run out. We do have a religion that is always operating by faith, do we not? But it's in those moments where he draws us more into what he's doing. It's in those moments where he he draws us to depend more upon him. And eventually, we all have to get out of the boat somehow and in some way. And so any community of believers, just like us, you know, we don't have all the resources in the world, but we, if we have a desire to bear witness, do we not have to recognize that there's a, a tension, that if we want to display the love of God to the world around us, then we have to wrestle with two realities. One, the call to bear witness, but also the re- fear of rejection, the frightening reality of it, the insecurity and the obstacles of fear that come right alongside that call to bear witness. Any church that wants to be faithful to bearing witness has to hold in tension the reality of faithfulness and fearfulness. And we feel that tension, and I feel that tension. You feel that tension, and that's okay, because the disciples did too. They had to deal with the exact same thing that you feel when you think about going into your streets. They had to deal with those same exact thing when they stepped out into their streets and into their neighborhoods. And we see it in our passage this morning when we come to Acts 4. But if I could just set the stage for a second, how did we get to Acts 4? Because so far, it's gone pretty awesome, right? Acts 1, we hear the command of Jesus to the disciples and the rest of the disciples that were a part of the larger group of disciples. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But wait, wait until the Spirit comes upon you, and you will receive power to bear witness. So they say, that's fantastic. They go to Jerusalem. They wait. They engage in a season of prayer for 10 days. They pray corporately and intensely as they wait for what God has in store for them. And then we get to Acts 2, and then Pentecost happens. Bam, the Spirit falls. God comes down. The rushing wind, the fire that falls from heaven, the city shakes, and 3,000 people come to know Christ in that moment, and they are baptized and converted in a single day. And then Acts 3, Peter and John are just going to church, going to the synagogue, and they see a guy that's lame, and he just asked them for money, and it said, Peter heals him. He's healed in the power of the Spirit. His legs that have been lame since birth are made whole instantly, and this lame man walked. Now, up to this point, if we were walking along with them, we might think, man, bearing witness is so easy. This is really awesome. This is going great. Look at all that's happened. What might tomorrow hold? Well, Acts 4 tells us they were thrown in prison. The very thing Jesus told them to do got them thrown in prison. They were bearing witness, and the authorities and the leaders threw Peter and John in prison. And just before they released them, they left him with a threat. And they said, you will not bear witness to the name of Jesus anymore whatsoever. Now let's keep in mind that's not an empty threat because we need to remember who it is that's giving that threat. These are the same leaders that just a few weeks before had Jesus killed. These are the same leaders that a few weeks before had completely influenced and turned the mob against Jesus, coerced Pilate, and led the chance to crucify him. These are not powerless men. And these are men that do not want them to bear witness 
whatsoever. And so just to unfamiliarize ourselves with maybe a story that we're familiar with, just think about that tension for a second, because here the disciples arrive at an incredibly profound existential crisis of faith. Jesus commands them to bear witness, and yet they have the rulers and the authorities and the chief priests say, you will not bear witness at all. And they know their life is threatened in the same way that Jesus' was. That's quite the tension of faith and fear. And so how does this community respond? Well, they don't respond with hate. They don't respond with insult for being insulted. They also don't turn inward. They don't turn inward and say, well, that's fine. Everything can happen out there. We'll just turn inward. We're good. We don't need anybody else. We'll just worship on our own and exist for ourselves. We'll exist for our own purposes, for our own reasons. And yet, that's not what we see. We actually see in verse 24, we see them double down. They gather together once again and they pray. They pray corporately. And it's in this prayer that we see this tension within them of wanting to be faithful, but also the reality of the fear of what that means. And we see in this prayer how they approached it. And the first thing it tells us is that they were not surprised by this resistance and opposition that they had faced. One, Jesus had told them that they would face it. Just before John 17 and John 16, John 15, the night before Jesus died, he told them exactly what would happen to them in the world. That after he's gone, he says, the world persecuted me, it's going to persecute you. The world hated me, it's going to hate you. He said, a slave is not greater than his master. Of course, they're not surprised. Jesus had just told them. But it's not just that they remember, hey, we're going to get persecuted, let's go on. It's actually how they remember that they will be persecuted. It's the way they see the persecution in light of a bigger story that's unfolding. That's why at the beginning of their prayer, they quote Psalm 2. It says, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They're quoting this psalm, and it's, it's a particular psalm that points forward and prophesies about the coming Messiah and the rejection and suffering that he would face at the hand of the world, the kings of the earth, the rulers, everyone gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. And the way that they are praying is that the fulfillment of that psalm, the very moment that it pointed to, all came to a head in the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, where the world was all represented with Pilate. And they list the you know, players in the game that had a part in crucifying the Lord of glory with Pilate and Herod, the Gentiles, and the Jews. The world was represented in their rejection of the salvation and love of God in Jesus Christ. And it's, in, that, in, the, it's their, in this prayer that they are remembering the human rejection of the Lord Jesus because they too are experiencing that same persecution from the same people. But they're not simply focusing on it. They're focusing on something bigger than the persecution they're experiencing. They're looking at it through the lens of this psalm because it anchors them in the real truth and the real reality of what's happening and what's occurring. They experience persecution because they know that they are continuing the Jesus story in this world. They experience the same persecution from the same people that Jesus experienced because their ministry is no different than the ministry 
of Jesus. It's one in the same. And they know exactly what they are doing whenever they bear witness. To the name of Jesus Christ, they are continuing his ministry in the world. It was through them that Christ was present in the world, continuing to bear witness to the love of God to the world and the power of the Spirit. It was the disciples, when they bore witness, knew that they were continuing the ministry of Jesus in the world. And what's true of them is true of us. We have not been given a different ministry with a different message. We, too, continue the story of Jesus in our time and in our place. Do you know that you and us together are the presence of Christ in this world through the power of the Spirit? Who will go for us? Do you know the story that you are a part of? Do you know what happens when we open our mouth and we bear witness to this King, to this Savior? We meet the same needs that Jesus met, the same kinds of people trying to figure out how to get by, trying to pay their bills, confused, feeling powerless, no different than we do today. And yet we still see through this persecution of the disciples that it wasn't just the persecution. They had to see beyond it to something bigger that they were a part of. And that we too can't just see the challenges that lie ahead. We have to see what it is that we are truly a part of, what it is that we truly are when we bear witness. And we are the fragrance of Christ to the world. Now, that's beautiful on the one hand, right? That we would continue the ministry of Jesus as a church. Yet it may not be enough to get you to open your mouth and bear witness. What's one thing to recognize the beauty of it, but is that enough to push you beyond your fear? Is that enough to push you beyond your rejection, the uh, you know, uh, obstacle of rejection or the insecurities that we feel when we, we move out into the world? Knowing what we're doing when we bear witness is one thing, but it may not be enough to remove the concerns and fears of rejection that loom so large in front of us. And that's okay, too, because it was the same for the disciples, because the prayer doesn't end there. It goes on. They know what they're doing when they bear witness, continuing the story of Jesus, but they continue to ask God for more. And in verse 29, the disciples ask for boldness. The disciples, they say, God, make us bold. Give us boldness to bear witness. And it's in that request for boldness that you actually see them take both faithfulness and their fearfulness seriously. It's in that request for boldness that they take seriously the call to bear witness to the world, but it's also a way in which they take seriously the fears and obstacles and insecurities within them. They don't pretend like they're not there. They don't pretend like they're not a big deal. They don't pretend like the threats against them and the threats against their life and against their welfare and their physical well-being are insignificant or petty. They don't act as though there's some brand or version of super-Christian out there that when they bear witness, they don't ever have any fear at all. That doesn't exist. Even the disciples needed to ask for boldness. They asked for boldness because they needed it. And I hope as you consider that this morning, it might give you some encouragement. Because think about who this is that's asking God for boldness. These are the ones that saw the resurrected Jesus. These are the ones that felt the wind of Pentecost on their face. 
They felt the fire on their tongue. They felt the city shake. They saw 3,000 people baptized and come to Christ in a single day. The same people that just saw a lame man's legs grow instantly whole. And even after seeing all of that, after all they experienced, they still had to ask for boldness. Give yourself permission to no longer think that you have to be some version of yourself that doesn't have fear before you can be used by God. It doesn't exist. It's okay to feel those obstacles within you. It's through this story we recognize we're supposed to ask for boldness. We need it. And they ask for boldness because they remember the God that they serve. Because in verse 28, they tell what lies beneath the surface of all of that persecution. They tell the reality of what really happened. This is God orchestrating something altogether different than what the world might see looking from the outside in. Where you have this moment where Pilate, Herod, the world comes down upon Jesus. It's this moment they remember in verse 28 that God himself orchestrated, God himself ordained, God himself predestined to take place. But if you look at it on the surface, it doesn't really appear that way, does it? And yet something completely opposite happens because he's a God that's doing far more beneath the surface than we could imagine. You have the moments of death that turns into life for the world. This moment where Jesus takes on the hatred of the world and it ends up revealing God's love for the world. This moment of the greatest persecution just simply ends up accomplishing the deepest heart and purposes of God. He's the God that's doing far more beneath the surface, and if you just focus on the persecution, you will miss him entirely. He is the God that gives boldness to his people, and they entrust themselves to this God. They ask for boldness because they entrust themselves to the way he works, the way he tells his story, and they desire to be a part of that mission, and so they ask for boldness, and so how does God respond to it? Well, it says in verse 31, and when they prayed, the place in which they gathered was shaken. Now, that's more than just like a neat little trick that God is doing. The idea that something would be shaken has a lot of imagery to it in the Bible. It's actually what's called a, a theophany. That's just a big fancy word for communicating something very simple. This is God communicating to them, I'm here. I'm with you. I'm going to be with you. I have come down. I have answered your desire for boldness. I'm here. So if we put all of this together, what's it tell us? I think if we put all of this together, it teaches us that the biggest obstacle to bearing witness is not the potential opposition that we might face. It's not the ability and power of God. The biggest obstacle to bearing witness is us and our own unwillingness to do it. And it's in this picture where God shakes this room that he tells us that it's not just about shaking, because if we pray for boldness, God shakes this church. If it did, it would fall apart, because it's so old, right? But any, we, we, if you focus on the shaking, then you miss the point entirely. What it's communicating to us is that God answers this prayer. God will answer the prayer of a people that ask for boldness to proclaim his name, and love to the world. And that is a privilege and a purpose that nothing else in this world will offer anything greater than that for you and for your life. 
to know the joy of participation in this Jesus story. The biggest obstacle is us because the greatest question is not will God move? The question is will we? I was talking with Janice Bowder this week and she told me a story about whenever her and Jim first got married, they started attending a new church together and they signed up to be a part of this ministry that would actually go door to door. But the, the door-to-door part was really just visiting people that were new visitors in their church. So it was a way for uh, just some home visits and to get to know people that were new to the church. And she, uh, there was a number of, of people that were a part of this ministry, and they would break up into smaller groups. And she, one night that she went out, uh, was with the pastor of their church. And they got done early. They walked back to the church, and they were just kind of waiting there. And so as they were waiting there, the pastor just said, hey, you know, to the rest of the group, he said, hey, you guys feeling brave? And they said, what do you have in mind? And the pastor said, let's cross the street, you know, no further away than these houses around us. He said, let's cross the street and just go knock on the door and say hi. And so they say, okay. So they cross the street, they knock on the door, and they say hello, and they find a, yeah, uh, uh, an elderly woman living there with her granddaughter, living by themselves. And they started to get to know her story a little bit. And finally, she just told him, she said, you know, I've lived here across the street for 25 years from this church. And in those 25 years, I've never had anyone say hello to me or anyone say hi. And she said, thank you for coming. And she didn't actually say that as judgment on the church because she actually showed up the next week. And then she started bringing people with her. There's four or five, six people that Janus could remember that this woman ended up over time bringing and telling about this church that had moved towards her. And actually, one of Jim's friends ended up getting married to a woman that this woman brought to church. And she started just going down the line of all of the ways in which God did something that was a lot better than anything that we could have done if we just thought, hey, let's exist for ourselves. But instead, we have an opportunity to step into the unknown and trust that God is with us every step of the way. Because he is, after all, the God that desires to come down and dwell with his people. Let's pray.